This is Salt and Spine. More than ever, the kitchen is the classroom, literally. And we've seen that people need to be armed with the capability of cooking for themselves. It's really critical. Well, actually, we are affected by this. Well, I can't get flour, I can't get this, or I can't do that. Then we see how important all these things are. And it's too bad that it takes something so drastic for people to kind of wake up to all of this. But here we are. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Carolyn Fetterman. Now, Carolyn is the founder of the Charlie Cart Project, a nonprofit that she created to make food education more accessible in schools. That's what much of Carolyn's career has focused on, childhood food education, and it all fell into place through a serendipitous meeting with Chez Panisse founder Alice Waters. Carolyn went on to lead Alice Waters' Edible Schoolyard Project before helping launch the Berkeley Food Institute at the University of California, advising on food policy for folks like Chef Jamie Oliver, and of course launching the Charlie Cart Project. Now Carolyn joined us to talk about her first cookbook, New Favorites for New Cooks, which brings together many of the lessons she's developed for making culinary arts accessible and appealing to young people. Uh, There's over 50 recipes in this book. They range from a black bean taco bar to melty pesto paninis. And Carolyn works in science, knife skills, nutrition, and much more throughout. Now, Carolyn and I actually met in person recently while we were in Italy as Salt and Spine was being recognized by the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera for our program. And Carolyn was being recognized uh, for her work in creating the Charlie Cart Project. We plan to connect for an interview once back in the States, but of course, as luck and timing would have it. Despite living just around the corner from each other, the pandemic moved our chat online. So stay tuned for a great conversation. And of course, don't go anywhere because we're playing a culinary game with Carolyn as well. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Carolyn Fetterman joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? I'm good, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thank you for joining us. to see you. I know. It's good to see you too, virtually here on Salt and Spine. We're neighbors, but we're <laughs> coming to each other via the internet today. Because <laughs> that's the time we're in right now. That's the time we're in, yes. Um, but I'm so glad we could have you on to talk about your career and your most recent cookbook, New Favorites for New Cooks, which I want to talk about a little bit later. Um, but we always like to start by talking about our guests' sort of career and life trajectory. So let's let's maybe start there then. I think you grew up in the Bay Area. Is that right? Am I getting that right? That's right. Yeah. In Saratoga. In Saratoga. Okay. And what role did food play in your life as a kid? Was it very present where, where you're doing a lot of cooking at home? So I didn't do a lot of cooking, but my parents cooked a lot. And we okay. actually lived, um, we had an apricot orchard behind our house. So, and then my dad had a big garden. So we had a lot of fresh things around and we would make jam from the fallen apricots and my father would make a lot of jam and chutney and, um, and my parents grew up in Brooklyn. So they were exposed to all different kinds of cuisine. Sure. And so Mm -hmm. we ate everything and, and we were really big eaters. We ate dinner together every night. There was never a scrap of anything left. My mother's food was influenced heavily by um, the 50s. (laughs) 
<laughs> and also being um, the child of immigrants, you know, she she knew how to be really thrifty with food, long cooking stews and things like that. We ate tongue, right. which really horrible. And, uh, <laughs> You're not a fan. <laughs> not a fan of tongue, but she um, but she cooked with love and um, and lots of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup. And yeah, we just cooked and ate and uh it was really central to our lives yeah were cookbooks a part of your life as a kid did your parents rely on cookbooks or was your mom your dad mostly cooking from memory Uh, my dad never really cooked from cookbooks he still doesn't but my mother relied a lot on the new york times cookbook and the joy of cooking okay Uh silver palette cookbook i mean she had like four you know and she had a recipe box that she had with, with the little cards you know index cards I think actually my brother still has her recipe box. Yeah. And I have her New York Times cookbook. So that's great. Were those, those were recipes of hers that she was writing or those were family recipes that had been collected both? I think they were favorites from actually, you know, she subscribed to Gourmet and Sunset. And so we had like stacks and stacks of Gourmet magazine. And I think um, that those index cards were maybe recipes that she collected out of various magazines and they were favorites. She used to make kind of, she had her repertoire as people do, right? So she made um, actually a fantastic chocolate mousse out of the New York times cookbook. And she made fettuccine Alfredo a lot Yeah, <laughs> and tuna casserole. <laughs> right. The staples. Yeah. Tuna casserole is a favorite of my mother's too. Um, so skipping ahead a bit, then you go to you go to UC Berkeley for undergrad, right? And you're you're studying anthropology, I think. That's right. Yeah. Wow, you do your research. What were you, <laughs> yeah, what were you sort of thinking career wise at that point? I was not thinking. I didn't have a clue, really. I I I just had no idea. I really liked the confluence of food and culture always it was really interesting to me. And Growing up, whenever you'd go to the Natural History Museum, the dioramas would show what people were eating or the tools they used to cook. I always loved that part the best. And anthropology seemed to be the only subject that brought so many different components together about human life. So that was really interesting. I just didn't know what I would do with it. And then I really fell into the food work by sort of a fluke. Yeah, because I think you you graduated and you're working and then you sort of have, I think the moment you fell into food world is this moment where you get sort of connected to Alice Waters. Is that right? That's right. Can you tell us how that sort of happened, what that serendipitous moment and how that sort of transpired? Yes, it's a funny story, actually. So I was a friend of mine was starting a marketing company and she wanted to pitch her new business and she wanted to seem like she had a staff. And I had just had my my first child and she said will you come since I wasn't working I was on maternity leave will you come and sit with me for the pitch and and be our events person so I did and um I mean I really had no experience with events okay other than honestly like planning my own wedding you know sure so the woman that was sitting across from us in the pitch was a close friend of Alice Waters and she knew that I had recently moved to Berkeley. And she called me after the meeting and said, I really think you'd hit it off with Alice Waters. And she's looking for this 
for someone to run a, a large event for her. And since you have events experience, you know, can you go and meet with her? And um, I did. And Alice and I had this really funny meeting where, you know, she had these this binder she was showing me about this party she wanted to have. And she opened the rings of the binder and the, all the papers were in the slip covers. They're really slippery. So they went all over the room <laughs> and she was kind of trying to gather them together. <laughs> and I said, you know, why don't you just tell me, tell me about the party and I'll take care of these papers, you know, while you talk. And right. that was just the, like exactly our relationship for the next 20 years. You know? Yeah. 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 And so you go, <laughs> you, you plan the party, right? <laughs> and I then you go on to the uh, yeah, it was yeah. the 30th anniversary of Chez Panisse Restaurant. Yeah. And so I was just immersed in organic food culture. And it was just a crash course in learning everything that was going on in organic food, farmers markets, and the history of the restaurant. There were 200 Chez Panisse alumni that I had to coordinate with. So I got to know everything and everyone about that restaurant and the network of farms and everything that Alice has created. Yeah. And that sort of then led into this job working at the Chez Panisse Foundation. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And so at that point, you sort of start working for the Chez Panisse Foundation and thinking probably I would imagine more about our food systems and um, thinking maybe about food differently and sort of about the work and the mission that Alice had sort of created with the Chez Panisse Foundation. Were there lessons that you sort of learned from those early days of sort of working under the Chez Panisse umbrella, and particularly the Chez Panisse Foundation umbrella? Absolutely. I mean, even going back to the event, working with Alice at all changed 100% how I thought about food. I mean, yeah. even though I had been interested in food and I, I got the connection between culture and food and I understood how important that was, I I learned from Alice the value of knowing where your food comes from, of treating the farmers and everyone along the food chain with respect, um, paying what food is really worth, really voting with your dollars when you buy food, food waste. I mean, I just learned about all of that from her. And um, I started eating organic food immediately. I mean, she just convinced me completely. And she also exposed me to a lot of information. It wasn't just... Alice talking about these things in the inspirational way that she does, but, but, you know, providing me with materials to read and films to watch and people to talk to so that I could really learn about what's going on and see it through the eyes of the restaurant as well. You mentioned that when you were planning the 30th, you had, you know, 200 something Chez Panisse alumni who you were contacting. We've talked at various points on Salt and Spine as we've had different guests on about sort of the significance of Chez Panisse in California cuisine and in American cuisine. And sort of, I mean, we've talked to Samin Nasrat and we've talked to Cal Peter now and we've talked to all these folks on our show about the restaurant, but we haven't really talked a lot on our show about sort of the significance of the foundation and like the other component of the Chez Panisse world and and the impact that that has really sort of had on our national thinking around food. Can you talk a little bit about the role that you think that sort of side of Chez Panisse has played since we've spent so much time maybe in the past talking about the restaurant? Obviously, they're connected, oh, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's such a great question. Thank you for that question. I, um, I think people... Ha- really have no idea how much influence Alice has had worldwide on food education. 
So firstly, a lot of people don't realize that she's regularly hosting heads of state, uh, Surgeon General. I mean, you name it, they have been through the edible schoolyard. So we used to, when I was there, we used to host about 2,000 visitors a year. And that's that's at the foundation, right? That's not the restaurant. That's just like her foundation that's, work? That's not the restaurant. So that's the edible schoolyard um, garden and kitchen, which is on the campus of a public middle school in Berkeley. And that's the, the sort of flagship program that the Chapinese Foundation supported right. and ran. And then that has been replicated across the country. I mean, I, it's been a long time since I've worked there, but I think there's something like ten or 15,000 programs in their network now that they may not call themselves edible schoolyards, but they're school garden programs. Sure. Um, and that, ne- that network is growing really quickly. And that's definitely thanks to Alice creating a model of what's possible, creating an, an academy so that educators can learn about this. And then always pushing the envelope on the advocacy side and the legislative side for um, school lunch reform and including kitchen garden education into formal academic studies, you know, into the kids' school day, incorporating it in the kids' school day. Yeah. You know, the other thing that she's worked a lot on and that we work together on um, is school lunch reform. And that doesn't get talked about that much. But, um, you know, Alice's vision was always to have the edible schoolyard was happening in the kitchen and um, garden classrooms echoed in the lunchroom. So kids are learning about food and then they go get to eat that good food in the cafeteria. When I worked for her, we actually totally transformed the Berkeley Unified School lunch program from kind of heat and serve to scratch cooking. We changed the ingredients. We brought in a lot more organic ingredients. And then we published studies about that, evaluations that showed that kids who were getting a lot of exposure with the new school lunch and the kitchen garden program were even drinking less soda. So it it really had a, a huge impact. Yeah. And then also, you know, growing, uh, raising my kids in Berkeley, I've seen the impact. I mean, you can see the impact on the city of Berkeley. It wasn't always such a foodie place. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And at, at some point, I imagine you start to become more personally interested. Obviously, you mentioned raising your kids in Berkeley, but you sort of are working on Edible Schoolyard. You're working at Peace Foundation. You start to work on other programs sort of related to childhood education around food and nutrition. And then I want to skip ahead maybe because then you eventually, I, I'm not sure exactly the timing here, but create this organization, Charlie Cart organization, right? That's right. How did that sort of trajectory go? Like, did you sort of, did you develop a, a really um, a heightened sort of interest in focusing on that sort of specific niche of, of sort of becoming an expert and like pushing our school's education in the right direction? on that front or how did you sort of move to where, where you were launching that organization of your own? Well, I wanted to, like I said, I saw the impact of what um, was happening at the edible schoolyard and I wanted to see that kind of program be accessible to people who maybe could not put in, have, who didn't have the resources to put in a whole kitchen classroom. And I was also doing a lot of cooking in my kids' classrooms and the kids loved it so much. And you could just see everything light up. And I thought, wow, this is pretty fun and rewarding. And also wouldn't be that hard to create a system to make it possible in a classroom. 
you know, and then I had gone to the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery and they, Kerry Clayflin from Boston University was putting on a presentation about, uh, it was called Trench Fair. And she showed these pictures of World War II, uh, World War One. sorry, rolling kitchens, cuisine roulette um, from France. And I thought, oh, that's exactly what we need. <laughs> so I came home from that. I talked to a friend who's a designer and he said, yeah, I'll design that for you. And um, that's how it happened. And then um, we did a Kickstarter to just to make a few to see how it would go. And we threw up a website and we had orders right away. So people were really looking wow. for something like this. Yeah, just this sort of all-in-one, you know, what's going to make this easier for people? They just can roll their little kitchen right into the classroom. And because I had done this by myself in my kids' classrooms all the way from kindergarten to um, eighth grade, I knew exactly the tools that people would need. And I knew how to make it simple and accessible and not overwhelming for teachers. And the concept just sort of came from seeing that image of that World War One yeah, kitchen cart. It did, yeah. The rolling <laughs> kitchen. Yeah. The French soldiers were oh, that picture was so incredible. It was a sepia tone picture and it had this um uh-huh. it had those giant wagon wheels and then it had a um stovepipe and right. these soldiers were marching alongside it. And I thought, Oh, those are French soldiers, right? You know that there's a giant batch of cassoulet going in there and you could just picture the steam wafting out of that stovepipe. <laughs> and then I yeah. came home and I did some research and I found out that the chuck wagon actually preceded that cuisine roulant. And a, okay. a lot of people don't know what the chuck wagon is. Do you know what the chuck wagon is? I think so. Like, um, yeah. explain it first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm having a hard time articulating it. It's the kitchen it's wagon. Not, it's not a covered wagon, but it's a component of the yeah. traveling pack, right? That's okay. right. Yeah, from the American okay. Prairie. It's the um, right. It was basically the cook's wagon, uh-huh. and it had at the back of it this little storage component where you would keep your dried beef and your salted dried biscuits and coffee, right? And that the lid of that folded up to make a little storage, a little prep area. So it's this really ingenious design. And, you know, the guy who drove it was called the cookie. Uh-huh, yeah. right. And um, and it had all the tools and all the food and then this kind of self-contained place to do the cooking. And so when we, when we designed the Charlie cart, we used the ideas from the check wagon and the name comes from that as well. So the check wagon is supposed to be the great, great grandchild. I mean, the Charlie cart is supposed to be the great, great grandchild of the check wagon. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. So can you tell us more about what a Charlie cart is then? If you if you have one and wheel it into a classroom, what, what do you get? So you get 172 pieces of equipment and it's very basic. I'm a big believer in no gadget or low gadget cooking. So uh-huh. um, it's set up for 30 kids. So you get a small oven, a sink, which is a self-enclosed gray water system, an induction burner, a griddle, and a Vitamix. And those are the appliances. And so you get um, cutting mats, brightly colored cutting mats, different types of knives, graters, whisks, mortar and pestle, single most important cooking invention ever. Yeah. Yeah, just the basics. 
Can you elaborate on both the knives and the mortar and pestle comments? Because I've been tweaked <laughs> by both of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so knives in classrooms, obviously, that's fairly charged. So um, how we approach knives is we have three types of knives on the Charlie cart. We have pan scrapers, which are um, for very little kids to learn the chopping gesture and how to hold something safely, and then they can't get hurt, and then they can learn all the rules. So it comes sure. with a whole bunch of pan scrapers, and you can use that for cooked fruit and what have you. Then we have this very small knife. We call it the tot knife. It's shaped exactly like a regular knife, but it's on a very small scale. It has a serrated edge, and it's, it's not sharp at all, and it has a rounded tip. So once kids learn the safety rules and they can graduate to the tot knife and they can learn then the gesture of holding a real knife. And then mm-hmm. the third knife is a real paring knife, which is actually donated by Victoria Knox, which is wonderful. It has a round tip and a serrated edge, but they're really sharp. So we focus a lot on knife skills and readiness and ultimately, it's up to the educator to determine whether or not their kids are going to be able to handle this. But personally, my philosophy is it is much better to teach a child how to use a real knife. It's much safer in the end than to give them something like a lettuce knife that's really unwieldy and, and doesn't give them the skills that they need in an actual kitchen. Right. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Carolyn Fetterman. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine this week. There you'll find a chance to win your own copy of New Favorites for New Cooks. You can also find two recipes from New Favorites for New Cooks on saltandspine.com. We've got the melty pesto paninis and a recipe for sweet potato fries. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Carolyn Fetterman, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club. Cook along with one of our featured authors every month and then join us for a virtual dinner party with the author. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Carolyn Fetterman, author of New Favorites for New Cooks. Obviously, you're an expert in sort of food education and schools. Can you talk about where we sort of are as a country? Like, I, you've been working on this for years. So what, what's sort of like the status report? Like, how we're doing? What progress have we made? What do we need to do on that front? Well, we were on a really great upward trajectory, right? Food education was ready to go mainstream. And it, was, it had been much more widely adopted and accepted and valued. Now, with the pandemic, things will have to change. I, I think that um, what will have to change will be the delivery mechanism. But I think that now, more than ever, the kitchen is the classroom, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've seen that people need to be armed with the capability of cooking for themselves. It's really critical. 
right? And so many pieces of the food system had been kind of undercover that are now being exposed by the pandemic and seeing the problems in the food system and understanding. I think it's so easy for people to ignore problems when they don't directly affect them, right? And now we're seeing, oh, actually, we are affected by this. Well, I can't get flour. I can't get this or I can't do that. Um, You know, then we see how important all these things are. And it's too bad that it takes something so drastic for people to kind of wake up to all of this. But here we are. So I think that if anything, food education is going to be more important than ever and and will be valued differently. But the like I said, the delivery mechanism will have to change. I I don't know how people are going to feel about hands-on cooking with groups of kids. And so we have to really come together to think about what's going to work. I mean, hands-on education is the most effective for sure. So if we can't do that, we're going to have to look at what we can do. What are the new opportunities? Right. Well, I think one thing we can do is cook at home and use cookbooks, which leads me to New Favorites for New Cooks, which is the title of your cookbook. Can you talk about how you, when you decided you would write a cookbook and what that sort of process looked like that you would write a cookbook that focused on kid-friendly but delicious recipes? Well, I always wanted to write a cookbook that integrated science lessons because uh-huh. that's such an easy win for parents and yeah. kids and educators. <laughs> um, sure. And then that just got sidelined. And when I started Charlie Cart, I wrote a curriculum for Charlie Cart. So there's a K, uh, K5 curriculum that comes with the cart and uses only the tools that are on the cart. Those recipes and lesson plans were tested over and over again by kids. And I saw kids in the classroom cook those things. And so I knew I had a lot of information personally about how kids reacted to certain things. What's hard for kids? You know, what do they see as a challenge and and what really turns their cranks, you know? Yeah. And I thought that I could take the curriculum binder and bring it to a publisher and they could just turn it into a book. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds easy. <laughs> I thought it was going to be so easy. I spent so much time writing the curriculum and it was, you know, vetted and proofed by, you know, educators and cookbook authors and cookbook editors and proofreaders. Anyway, it was not that easy, but um, yeah, I took it to Ten Speed to Jenny Wapner at Ten Speed, and she said, "Great, let's do it. Let's turn it into a book." And um, I thought it would be really fun for people to be able to do those recipes at home because they were kid tested. And so we didn't turn the curriculum into a book because that's right. not how it works, right? But we did use a lot of the research and a lot of the kind of foundation of the recipes on the curriculum. So that's how, that's kind of how it came about. Yeah. And you talked about the process of kids having tested lots of these recipes over time and some of the takeaways. Were there things that surprised you that were flops or were total successes? Oh yeah. I mean, they, the kids are so great with their feedback, you know, they're so enthusiastic and just honest and (laughs) and honest and honest. So yes, there were so many things. I mean, From things like, well, do you keep the lid on the pot? You know, like questions like that, that for people who cook, and I think this is um, another thing that I really learned working with chefs on the Charlie Cart project is that, you know, so much, you have so much information in your head about cooking that 
it can be really difficult to convey that to another person because you skip steps because to you, they're really obvious, right? So um, I really learned about slowing down and actually thinking through every single tiny detail and making sure to articulate every little piece. That was important. That was a that's the kind of question and comment that came up a lot with kids. And also that, you know, if I think something is simple, then I would have to dial it back 10 times to make it Uh simple for a kid. You know, I was like, Oh, this is a no brainer, but actually no, you know? Um, so the recipes had to be made simple, 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 simple. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the lesson is that kids are the best recipe testers and they should recipe test every cookbook because they, they are so attentive to those missing steps that might be, might be because of assumptions we make that people know how to do certain things in the kitchen. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, how many times have you read a cookbook that you may love the cookbook, but you think, wait, and even right. Wait a second. Or sometimes I'll go through a recipe and I'll think, well, they don't say to do blah, 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 but I'm going to do that because I know as an experienced cook that that's going to work better. Sure. You know? Right. And, totally. and kids, you know, kids who haven't been cooking for years and years just can't fill in those gaps, you know, but yeah. the great thing about getting them in the kitchen right now during quarantine is that they can learn all of those things, right? This is, I mean, for folks that have the luxury to be trying a bunch of new recipes right now, mm-hmm. this is an amazing time to teach kids to cook. Yeah. Are there particular lessons you have for parents? Like if someone were to call you tomorrow and say, we're, we're in quarantine, I want to teach my kids more kitchen skills. What are, what are the big takeaways that you would offer? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for young kids, I think pancakes is such an easy win. And I know I've heard a lot of chefs say that, right? Because they can measure, they can mix, it's instant gratification. And then they go, wow, you know, I did that. And they feel so good about it. And that little bit of confidence can spur them on to try the next thing. So I think you want to always start with easy, easy wins. You want the kid to feel like it was a huge success the first time. Plus you can make a fun shape. Yeah. you And you can put berries in it and whatever, you know, like there's so many ways to go. Right. Right. And then, um, and then I think a really important thing. So more than skills, I focus on outcome, you know, because they're going to get the skills along the way. So I think the the really important thing is to focus on a win. So things that are revelatory, that's really important that they think either, wow, I had no idea I could make this myself. Something like granola, tortillas, flatbread, hummus, you know, almond milk, like things that are sort of pantry staples, but people don't realize how easy they are to make or things that are revelatory in taste, like roasted cauliflower, right? Kids think a lot of kids think that they hate brassica, right? But if you, if you roast cauliflower with salt, maybe some chili flakes for kids who like spicy, I mean, I have never met a kid that doesn't devour roasted cauliflower. So things yeah. like things like that. And I think, you know, if you focus on having it, the child enjoy themselves and enjoy the process, then all of the skills just come. And then they they gain that confidence to be more curious. Sure. So we're a show on cookbooks, obviously. I'm wondering if there are cookbooks or cookbook authors that have been particularly influential to you, either personally or over the course of your career, or even as you were sort of thinking about writing your cookbook. Yes, definitely. Um, So David Tannis, I cooked my way through his first cookbook. 
at a time when I was having kind of a hard time and my kids were young and we just cooked everything and they got really into it. You know, they got really into the food. They got really into learning how to make different things. And we had these beautiful meals every night. And um, I think his food is just magical. It's just magical. He really talks you through how to make something. He uses a lot of basic ingredients that are easy to find. And his recipes are just foolproof. So David, so David Tannis, definitely. And then um, I spent a lot of time reading Harold McGee's books mm-hmm. sure. uh, for the curiosity of it and really understanding what's going on underneath the cooking, like what's happening. Right. And that helps, obviously, can help you really become a better cook. And then the Canal House cookbooks. Yeah. Are you familiar with those? Yeah. I am. Yeah. They're just so beautiful and everything is just like, oh God, you just want to eat it, right? The pictures are amazing and the food is simple and straightforward and kind of unfussy, you know? I thought if I could make my cookbook look like the Canal House cookbooks when they used to publish those quarterly paperback Uh ones, the subscription Uh books, if I could make it look like that, that would be such a success. So yeah, that's great. Those are those are great selections. Well, we always end with little games. So I thought we would lean into this virtual recording pandemic situation that we find ourselves in and and your expertise in helping get kids involved in the cooking process by playing a couple rounds. We have four stacks of cards here. So we'll draw some ingredients. Think of it as sort of like a a round of chopped, right? You open up your basket or your pantry, and this is what you have to work with. And you've also got a kid who wants to help out. What might we make for dinner? Um, So we've got vegetables, which are vegetables. We've got flavors, herbs and spices and things, proteins, and then secret ingredient, which is sort of a, a wild card situation. So... We'll, we'll draw maybe did you come up one with this by your, on your own for this? No, I did not. These We use these wonderful cards um, that you can buy on our website that we did not create um, that were also a Kickstarter funded thing at one point, but they work perfectly for our game. That's fun. So I'll shuffle a little bit and we'll, we'll start with the first round. It's so fun. I love it. Okay. Okay. So we've got potato for our vegetable, basil is our flavor. We have some shrimp. Oh, and our secret ingredient is rice cakes. So what rice might cakes. we make? Yeah. What might we make with our kids helping in the kitchen uh, with oh, these wow. ingredients? Okay. Well, um, so the first thing I was thinking was I was going to make a quick pesto with the basil and I was going to um, put that over the potatoes and then roast the potatoes in the oven. And okay. then, mm-hmm. um, and that's all so fun for kids. Every single part of that, they can do that. Um, mortar and pestle basil, it takes five minutes. And yeah. then, um, and then the rice cakes and shrimp. I actually don't cook with shrimp very often, but I would think that you could break up those rice cakes and use them as some sort of base with the shrimp. And maybe you could throw everything together, but maybe that's getting kind of weird. But, um, I've never had be- uh, pesto on shrimp, but it probably couldn't be bad. And then I would, I you know, so, I would, yeah. right? I would saute the shrimp and I would throw it all together. Yeah. And I, that would be easy for you. <laughs> that would be easy <laughs> for you. So, what would yeah. you do with that, Brian? <laughs> 
Well, I think your suggestions are great. I might have the rice cakes as like the snack while we're cooking. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird right? kind of... Just something to munch on, yeah. Or you could pulverize them and um, sprinkle them on top, sort of a yeah. little crunchy finish, a little texture yeah. there. Oh, kids would love that. Absolutely. Yeah, that was great. Let's do one more round. Okay, we have kale and thyme. Kale and, and then we have... Kale is so controversial. How so? <laughs> well, <laughs> I do. We do a lot of work outside of California, and people equate kale with California, and everyone telling you what to right. eat and how to eat, and you know, it has right. it has a lot of baggage. Kale. Yeah. Well, we're going to embrace it today, um, <laughs> and I guess we're on a we're on a seafood bent because we've got kale, thyme, tuna, and honey. Whoa, Brian. <laughs> 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 oh no these are pretty okay. tame sometimes we get some real wild ones there's a gummy really? bear card in here that is never never a fun one to get <laughs> <laughs> well the gummy bears could be what you said you know just the snack before right okay sure okay well i guess we're gonna cook the tuna with the thyme and mm-hmm. the kale do a bit of kale and we'll make a sauce with the honey like, what kind of sauce will we make with the honey? I mean, I hate to adulterate our tuna with honey. I would hate to do that. Um, yeah. Oh. Could we put it on the kale, like with some citrus, maybe? We could make a dressing. We could make a dressing. Yeah. That's a great idea. Could we Could we make a drink with the honey and use the oh. other stuff with dinner? Sure. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Let's make a yummy drink with the honey. Like, um, God, anything. Lemonade, limeade. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds delicious. It's like slime <laughs> That'll go well with our with our tuna, and then um, and then we can just cook the the tuna with thyme, and we can and then we can do a garlic saute with the kale and eat it all together. I like to keep things simple, and I also think when you're trying to introduce food to kids the first time, you want to keep the flavors kind of simple so that they don't reject, reject, reject. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's great. Yeah. A tuna, 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 a ti- oh, it's a tongue twister. A thyme tuna. A thyme tuna. <laughs> I know. I've never had thyme with tuna. It couldn't be bad. You could do it in parchment and it could be pretty. Oh, and, yeah, that'd be delicious. Right? Yeah, a little parchment tuna. Open that up at the table with some garlic kale and a, a honey limeade. That sounds like a, a great dinner. <laughs> kind of weird, but it'll work. <laughs> Maybe we I can make so. honey ice cream for dessert. Oh, that would be delicious. That'd be even better than Honey Limeade. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that was so fun. Well, thank you so much for playing our game. Thank you for joining us on Salt and Spine, Carolyn. We're so glad to have you. Brian, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from new favorites for new cooks, melty pesto paninis, and sweet potato fries. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. 
thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.